So yeah, welcome back for the uh, afternoon. Just to um, open up um, a little bit uh, into some uh, discussion of uh, uh, our perceptions of others, how we create a, a world around us, um, and it's it's just you know, useful to to contemplate, useful to note um, that really this whole experience of of life you know what we call our our daily life is uh generally speaking a um mass uh conglomeration of uh perceptions uh that um we kind of project out uh into the world around us um you know what's happening out there is registered on uh, some basic level, and then it goes through this this mill of creating uh, all of these different um, perceptions to try and weave some sort of meaning uh, into it. And um, as we were talking about earlier during the questions and answers, that uh, uh, what we see and how we experience it um, is uh, pretty much based on these underlying tendencies that we all have uh, uh, that are just the result of uh, uh, conditioning uh, over you know many years in this life, and if you if you uh, have the view of, of many lifetimes, then uh, it just compounds and expands that uh, conditioning uh, even to an even greater extent. Um, so we all carry with us uh, from whatever causes. Uh, these these habits and these patterns that are deeply embedded um, in in the mind stream, uh, these underlying tendencies of attraction and aversion, confusion, um, all the views and opinions, the tendencies that we have um, are uh, underlying um, how we see the world around us, um, and we create just based on stimulus and response. We create this. Uh, this moving picture reality, in a sense, it's kind of like a uh, a movie projector, in a sense. It's kind of constantly churning out this image, uh, and um, all these things are happening. But because of what we attend to, what we want to see, what we don't want to see, uh, the screening process, all the data comes in, gets filtered, screened, and then kind of, in a sense, projected. Uh, into the world around us, and it becomes our reality. Um, there's just so many different ways that you can see it operating once you start looking, and, and all the different ways that we categorize uh, ourselves, categorize people, the roles that we have, and you can just see it, you know, uh, what our underlying tendencies are based on kind of our experience in the world and the people that we have around us um, and the way that we view them, um, the opinions that we have about certain roles in society um, and uh, you know, the meaning that that has. Um, you know, all the different labels that we have for people. You know, like I say you can be in a social situation, don't know somebody, um, and maybe you're going to introduce yourself. and uh, So you have first an image. There's a, an image of the person coming through, and there are certain qualities that you might pick up on. Uh, and you go and 
introduce yourself and ask the other person their name. And all of a sudden they have a name. Um, so you've moved into the label of, of naming somebody. Uh, you, first you see this image of, of certain lights and shades and qualities, uh, a form. Uh, all of a sudden it's identified as a person. Uh, then uh, it becomes a name. Uh, and that person starts to solidify in a way. You start to pick up on certain qualities. Uh, maybe ask them what their, uh, what their occupation is, their livelihood. Um, so just imagine you're in that situation, and they say, I'm a lawyer. You know, what comes up in your mind? You know, all of your conceptions of what a lawyer might be like based on your past experience. So maybe if you were in a certain lawsuit or something like that, uh, uh, and the image of uh, somebody who's accusing you or, or um, putting you on trial, uh, uh, if you were uh, you know, a defendant in some situation, um, or it's the other person's lawyer, then that feeling comes up and all of a sudden, ooh, you know, stay away, watch out, danger, uh, just comes up as an automatic reaction. Or if a lawyer is somebody who helped you through a difficult time or got your papers all together or really was uh, on your side, uh, you might have a, a fond reaction come up and want to get to know that person better. So just these labels uh, have certain meanings for us. Or if, say, you go up to somebody else and they, uh, you ask them what their role is, they say, well, I'm a doctor. Ooh, different kind of image comes up than, than a lawyer, different feeling, different judgment, or uh, housewife, or house husband, or waitress, or any of these kinds of roles, um, you can just watch and see the classes uh, of people um, in our own minds and, and the images and presumptions that we all create uh, around people just based on categories. Uh, it, so it just happens uh, all the time. Um, one of our, uh, most of you probably know who Ajahn Sumedho is, the senior uh, Western um, disciple of Ajahn Chah, uh, our teacher from Thailand. Very, Ajahn Smith is very well known, very ex- been teaching for many, many years. And I was uh, at a retreat that he was teaching many years ago, t- before I was a monk. And um, he had a great, there was a great afternoon when he was talking, we were delving into um, the creation of personalities and the creation, solidifying of the self-concept, and and uh, he kind of gave a, a, a running uh, monologue on 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 this attitude of perception, and and he he was saying it's like okay, here I am sitting up at the front of the room. Um, what are you seeing? You're you know you have your projections. Uh, you have uh, you see a teacher, uh, maybe somebody that you're a little bit afraid of, or. Um, somebody that you don't know well, but uh, you're creating this whole image of who is Ajahn Sumedho. And he kind of disappeared for a second in, <laughs> in, in uh, how he was projecting himself, paused, stepped back, and he just said, stop creating me. You know? I'm not here. And then, uh, now I'm here. <laughs> so he was going back and forth in his own self-perception or non-self-perception, but was admonishing people, you know, stop creating me. You know, your experience of Ajahn Sumedho is entirely within your own experience. There's no essential entity uh, sitting up here uh, that you can typecast. 
So we do that all the time. Um, and it's based on our past experience. I, I know when I was, you know, I had a lot of conditioning in my uh, younger years, and I probably came into it from, the, uh, from many lifetimes of a fair amount of uh, anxiety and fear growing up. And um, it's, you know, the, the tendencies are very strong. And, and even now, today, like if I walk down a street uh, in a city particularly, and a, a, a group of young men are walking together, uh, on, and they're coming towards me, it's sort of like this immediate, almost uh, automatic perception of, be careful, you know. Uh, it's me alone and a group of young guys, and who knows what... They're going to say in that even, uh, I was just noticing, you know, and I'm quite aware of it and pretty much can catch it quite quickly and not, not delve into it. But, but uh, I love getting challenged with that each time. I was up at our hermitage in um, Washington State and we walk alms round every day into the village, the small village from our monastery there, to receive alms food that people uh, in the town might want to offer. And... Um, uh, Fairly recently, there was one of those situations where we were walking down the street and there was a group of, I don't know, maybe very young teenagers, uh, middle age, or middle teenagers uh, in a group. And just that automatic response came up in kind of a mild way. But I was on my reserve and walking through. And, and they stopped. Uh, and they stopped me. And, you know, it was sort of like there was a little bit of, you know, who are you, what are you doing? They didn't recognize the robes. And so I answered, and all of a sudden they started, you know, being interested and wanting to ask questions, and were quite polite, and it just threw me, and and it was a great one of those great reminders of more conditioning, you know, not to expect what it is that we uh, initially assume. I'm sure others like you, you know, you've had similar kinds of experiences that your your initial perception just gets popped right away when realizing that you've made the wrong assumption and how much suffering that we can go through and bring into our lives uh, just by living through those perceptions. I was recently on a um, trip overseas. I had an opportunity to uh, go to Sri Lanka for a few months um, a couple of years ago. Uh, and there were a lot of um, delays. Uh, I was ended up traveling in a snowstorm. It was in January. I was leaving from Boston. I had to go to uh, New York, the JFK airport. I don't know if anybody has ever been to JFK airport, but it's a real amazing city into itself. But um, it was very uh, cold and snowy, and um, uh, the particular terminal that I was in uh, uh, seemed to be kind of the place where many of the homeless people in the area would come just to find some warmth in the waiting room. I had a probably about a 12-hour layover there, as it ended up being. Um, and it was very, it was interesting. Of, I thought when I was traveling to Sri Lanka, that was going to be my you know, third-world experience. But actually, JFK was, <laughs> was more of a third-world experience than anything else I had along that trip. But um, I was on the elevator going from one floor to another um, in the airport, and a very large, slightly mentally ill uh, man uh, got onto the elevator too, and then the door closed, and it was just the two of us. (laughs) Uh, And my mind had already been a little bit conditioned to this 
you know, here I am with a bunch of uh, people who were just trying to get out of the cold. And it, it was a very surreal experience. But then the elevator door closed and, and uh, the man in the elevator uh, looked at me and he had kind of a, what I interpreted was, you know, quite a, uh, a slightly angry or paranoid look to him. And he just said, he said, uh, do you believe in Jesus? <laughs> I thought, okay, well, how, how am I going to answer this? <laughs> you know, I want to be respectful of somebody else's beliefs and traditions, but I want to be honest. And I didn't really know what he meant by believing in Jesus. And, so <laughs> and I didn't want to, you know, tip the, <laughs> tip the balance uh, in any way. Um, so... I just, you know, and I could feel this, uh, you know, a bit of self-protection uh, welling up in, inside of myself, inside this closed elevator, wondering how long it was going to take to get to the next floor. <laughs> um, but um, I just tried to really still myself and, and just sort of uh, listen at a deeper level uh, and watch my own reaction uh, and then just try to be as present with him as I could. Um, without making any assumptions about what this all was meaning. And as I was doing that, and he was kind of looking at me, waiting for an answer, um, I can't remember exactly what I said, but something like, well, you know, I think that Jesus was probably a really, really good man. You know, I suspect that, I don't know very well, that's not my tradition, but from what I've heard, I suspect he was a really good being. And he looked at me and said, but do you believe in him? <laughs> and I think, you know, at that point, it was getting close to getting to the other floor. But, <laughs> but I just said, well, you know, I just don't know enough. I just don't, you know, I tried to be really honest. I just don't know enough about, about that to, to be able to answer that in any, you know, honest way. But I think that more than what I was saying, you know, the fact that I was able to finally collect myself and override that, perception of danger um, was something that kind of helped diffuse any any difficulties that might occur. Um, so, uh, you know, and to drop any kind of perception about who he might be, you know, whether he was just somebody who was mentally ill and that I needed to be careful of because he might be dangerous, you know, and all the projections and assumptions that make, one makes about that. Uh, or was he, you know, really just kind of an evangelical person who wanted to convert me or really saw that I was, you know, uh, a Buddhist or something in his mind? Who knows what he was projecting onto me? So uh, just trying to diffuse the whole projection process uh, seems to be a really useful way to uh, to cope with the world around us. And to just stop making people into our own image, um, There was, you know, it's hard not to get into sometimes these unskillful things. And in, in my work situation, before I was a monk, I was a, I was a nurse, a registered nurse, working in a, many different settings. But in one of the community settings that I was working in, um, a day center for older adults, there were three of us nurses working together uh, over many years, got to know each other very well. And... Um, 
uh, we had a very close working relationship. One of the other nurses, her name was, uh, was Janet, and I had a particularly close relationship. Um, and then this other nurse, uh, a very fine person as well, um, but had some habits or tendencies that kind of piqued us every now and then. Um, and we would find ourselves, Janet and I would find ourselves, um, you know, kind of saying, well, did you, did you hear what she did or did you see what she did? Or kind of doing a little bit of, of sniping, a little bit of griping, uh, talking about uh, somebody else. Um, noticing some of the uh, some irritating quality or something, and um, you know we kind of get into it for a little while and then and then stop and after doing that for some time, I think it kind of dawned on both of us that that was just creating a lot of uh, unsatisfactoriness in our in our work world, and it just didn 't feel right and we we sat down and we talked about it, and what can we do? so we came up with a plan and a pact to try and change our perceptions we weren 't consciously taking this up as a practice like I'm suggesting now, but it just seemed like the right thing to do to, to find a way not to do that. Uh, and so we made a pact that uh, every time something like that would happen and we'd say something to each other real quickly, noticing some unskillful quality or what we thought was an unskillful quality, we made a pact that for every time we did that, we had to come up with two qualities that were good that we really appreciated about this other person and had to verbalize that to the other person after we made our kind of snide comment or whatever complaint. Um, and after doing that for even, I think, just a few weeks, as both of us really agreed that our whole perception of this person really changed because we shifted our focus. Um, and instead of always noticing some particular quality that we didn't like, we started really bringing up consciously all the qualities that, that were good, that were, at least in our judgment were good, that we, did, that we did like. And sometimes it was a little difficult coming up with something right away, but um, if you really look hard, uh, you can usually find redeemable qualities in just about everybody. Uh, and by constantly doing that and constantly f- acknowledging the, the slight discomfort that we would feel when we would uh, go into... Um, the uh, the more uh, negative qualities, um, it just basically shifted our whole perception. And then I, I perceived, anyway, the whole three of us worked together in a much more harmonious way uh, and that um, and perhaps, you know, gave her some space, too, to just allow her good qualities to come out because even if you're not expressing these things to other people, people pick up on the vibe. You know, people pick up on the body language. Of, uh, of how you are with them in the world. So we can shift our perceptions. Um, we can change our perceptions. Um, we just have to, to bring it into focus um, and notice uh, when these um, negative uh, perceptions, uh, notice when they arise. Uh, and then also uh, notice uh, when we can let them go. Uh, and shift our position, uh, our perceptual process, uh, and to really consciously do that, um, and that's using, as I was talking about earlier, that's using the sankara, the volitional aspect, the fact that we do have a choice um, of how we can move and shift uh, the world of our perceiving, uh, our perceptual world around us. 
so we may come with a lot of patterns, a lot of habits that have been ingrained over time, uh, and we can't deny the the essential, you know, relative reality of those. Uh, but we, through mindfulness, we can recognize when they're happening, feel the feel the discomfort, feel the pain of those repetitive uh, perceptual habits, and then establish an intention and a skill, develop a skill over time of how to redirect that so that we can really reprogram our reality. Uh, and the world around us uh, looks a whole lot different uh, once, once you get, um, get the hang of how to do that. You know, the, the world can sometimes seem like a pretty negative, difficult, uh, unfair place when we see those qualities that are that are less than beautiful, uh, and without denying uh, the existence of, of unpleasantness and difficulty and unskillfulness, uh, we don't have to let that be our focus. We really can consciously uh, create and project out uh, into the world uh, something that's more positive, more skillful, uh, and more wholesome. Uh, based on, on values uh, like patience and kindness and compassion uh, and goodness. Uh, and if we attend to that, if we attune our perceptual process to those qualities and when they're arising, focus on them, dwell in them, then that becomes the nature of our experience. Uh, one of the Buddha's famous lines is, is that... Uh, what we think about and ponder about frequently becomes the nature of our mind. So just to, to reflect on that in your own lives and the situations that you, in, you find yourself in, um, the opinions you have, the, the reality that you live in um, is, is very useful to notice those, uh, how, we, how we create this world around us. So it's a beautiful day, and um, I think sometimes being out in nature is very conducive to to active contemplation around these things. So why don't we do some walking meditation for a a bit of time? Um, And how you want to use that time is up to you. If you want to just still, quiet, uh, and really uh, move into the um, uh, quietude of uh, walking back and forth in a a way that... uh, um, uh, is peaceful, then please do that. If some of these issues come up, some of the old habits, some of the ways that you're uh, viewing and experiencing the world starts to come up, then try and look at it from this lens of, well, what is it that I'm attending to? How am I focusing uh, my attention in a way that uh, either contributes to that or helps to uh, move it into a more positive direction? What can I do? What can I attend to in a positive way uh, to bring about a change in the quality of my experience? So whatever works for you, let's do this for maybe a half an hour. Um, Can somebody ring a bell, say at about 20 minutes to 2? Yeah, you got one? Okay, great. And then we'll come back around a quarter to 2. For walking meditation, generally, if you can find a place, I'm not sure what the space is going to be like out there, if you can find a place just to walk back and forth in 25, 30 paces, uh, that's great. The more you can contain the space so that you're not just wandering uh, and casting off in different directions, um, the more you can contain it to one set path back and forth, 
the stiller your mind can become and the more clear you can see. So let's take some time for um, people to offer any thoughts or comments or questions. Got a, I think we'll have a microphone find its way over to you here. Um, I really appreciated your story, your personal story of being in the elevator. Oh, I really appreciated hearing the story of your, your personal story of being in the elevator and the kind of, um, it really um, resonated with me. Um, and it feels really relevant right now. Um, in this time, especially, because some of us feel fear out in the world. Um, I had an experience yesterday of being in public transportation, and I felt fear. Um, And it was a very similar situation to what you had described of having these perceptions of um, people around me that that um, ended up being um, it woke me up to a feeling of wow like the 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 visceral fear that came up as a result of my preconceived ideas of people. And it, when it when it shattered, like it didn't turn out that way, it brought up these feelings of grief and um, um, just yeah. And I guess my question is, how do we work with fear as um, it arises when there's this perception? Um, because it feels so compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, like the instinct for me was to run. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a tough one. Um, you know, it's a very uh, learned experience. Uh, and you do. <laughs> yeah, that's the natural inclination is to, this is really uncomfortable, get me out of here. Um, very natural response. Um, and sometimes, you know, a lot of it is just being willing to to look at it retrospectively, you know, and to the best of your ability, not respond out of fear. You know, it doesn't mean that you should put yourself in clearly dangerous situations, um, not advocating that at all. <clears throat> but uh, not 
you know, if you need to make a movement or a response or to get away from a dangerous situation, you do it through through wisdom, you know, and recognition that in the world there are some situations that it's better not to be part of, and if you can be away from it, then then you do that. But uh, you, if you can make that action, that response uh, from a place of of clarity and wisdom uh, rather than fear, then. <clears throat> you know, you're um, going to suffer a lot less. Um, and some of it is just um, really making conscious um, that habitual state of mind. I, you know, actually had a very wise father uh, when I was growing up, and he picked up on, you know, some of these tendencies that I had. And, um, I remember early on, a, you know, a suggestion that he gave to me um, stuck with me uh, as, as a very wise kind of a thing. And as he said, you know, okay, well, you go through the day and you have certain worries and fears and concerns, minor, major, whatever they are, write them down, you know, write them down on a piece of paper, uh, carry a little notepad or whatever. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, look at it and ask yourself how many of those came true. <clears throat> and, you know, it's just a process of getting to know that this state of mind, if we operate it f- from it on a, you know, a frequent basis, um, it is just that state of anxiety trying to, or fear, trying to, to, to justify its, its uh, presence by finding an object. <clears throat> and that probably, you know, a vast majority of those situations just never come true. And once the, the beast is seen for what it is, um, then we're not fooled by it so much. And, and in any one situation that seems to be stimulating uh, that, that underlying tendency, um, if we can know that that's what's happening, know that there's a pretty good chance that this is just, you know, uh, another one of these paper tigers you know, you understand that similarly, you know, paper tigers, it looks real and it looks frightening, but it doesn't have much substance to it. The more you recognize um, how to recognize those situations, then, you know, you might still have that initial hit, like, say, I did in the elevator or something, but you don't, but you don't hold on to it and carry it with you and compound it and turn it into a big deal. You don't make a problem so much of it. Um... And it's just a matter of doing it over and over and over again with as much clarity, bringing in as much clarity as you can into the experience as it comes. And then the more you see it clearly, uh, the quicker you see it clearly, the less you will move into it again and again and again. Or if it happens, it happens, you know, much more. It happens very fast, and it's not like a, a sustained uh, kind of experience. Um, so you may not obliterate that kind of tendency of the mind completely, at least in the in the beginning. Um, but uh, it doesn't. You don't pick it up so much. You know, you might have a flash of a, of an experience of that fear, but you don't pick it up, land on it, proliferate on it, and and give it more energy. Um, 
And it's through that process of, of mindful attention uh, and recognition with the reflection of and, and developing knowledge of, well, is this one of those paper tigers? Yeah. Uh, sometimes you may or may not know, but it can bring you into a state of clarity um, so that at the same time, if you're developing other um, positive qualities, which we'll talk about some, um, uh, then it gives those positive qualities like kindness or compassion, uh, or patience uh, or wisdom, you know, clarity. It, it gives those a chance to kick in too because those are underlying tendencies that we can program into our system. Uh, and if you uh, can get caught less in, the, in the, the ones that lead to negativity and suffering, then it gives the space for those other ones as you develop them to, to pop in there quickly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'd like to piggyback on that question. So I can recognize the underlying anxiety and know that it's not particularly attached to what's the present situation. But it's pretty uncomfortable. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And it's pretty pervasive. So uh, what's a way to, I mean, not just push it out, which I sometimes can't do anyway, but just how to, um, and it goes for other uncomfortable feelings, but anxiety, loneliness, those kinds of feelings that don't really have direct objects mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how to deal with the discomfort associated with that I can only speak for myself um, that um, really using the breathing you know the, the um, in some of the Buddhist language uh, the breathing uh, is called the um, uh, kaya sankara the body conditioner um, and the in and out breathing is a very powerful force uh, for stabilization uh, and release of the actual uh, physical experience of these afflicted emotional states. Um, and whether it's anger or whether it's anxiety or fear, uh, uh, sensual desire, you know, acute states of, of lust. Um, Bringing, you know, the more attention and practice you get with using the breathing um, to uh, equalize, modify, tranquilize, settle, uh, and disperse the energies. Um, because a lot of those, those states, particularly anxiety and fear, are very somatic experiences, very body-oriented experiences. And we, we tend to miss that or we tend to underestimate um, uh, the effects in the energy system and in the body that these, these what we call mental states, you know, uh, how they manifest in the body. Um, and it's really, once you, you know, develop increasing skills with how to use the, breathe, the in and out breathing to recondition uh, the body and the mind and the energy systems. You can, you know, particularly when you've gotten to the point where you recognize that it's kind of one of these free-floating, non-object-oriented states of mind. Um, you know, 
that's really good because you you know most of us get most of the time get wrapped up in the whole mental reasoning and the activity we're such a you know uh, a mind or you know intellect oriented kind of uh, culture um, but if you're already there where you're not attributing it or trying to pin it on some um, intellectual uh, experience or some you know mental experience um, then really developing and using the breathing uh, to you know sit down with it um, and just allow yourself and I find that the focus scanning the body using the whole body not trying to limit say the breathing which many of us have learned to to, to one focus um, I find particularly with emotional states, that's too narrowing an experience. But coming back to the whole body, the whole energy uh, system within the body, and learning how to use the breathing uh, to approach, uh, you know, finding a comfortable spot to first focus on, and then going to the spot in the body where you feel the anxiety, feel the fear. And... Um, you know, one approach would be to actually go to that specific spot, whether it's, say it's in the gut or the solar plexus or whatever, and to just consciously bring the breathing into it. If that's too close, or if it sometimes that's a bit too hard to do because it's very painful and, and it's just you don't want to go there, maybe someplace close by, but not quite right in it, uh, that's a little bit more comfortable, kind of gently approaching it from the side. Um, but also repetitively coming back to places in the body where the breathing is comfortable, um, where it feels nice, and allowing yourself to experience that, and then gently letting that expand through the whole body. Sometimes you get a whole, you know, that, that obstructed area will kind of stay caught and tight. Um, but if you've got a full body experience, then it just it becomes a lesser part of, of, of your consciousness. Uh, and to just hold that space within the, the greater sphere of uh, awareness of the body breathing in and out, and the, the physical pleasure that can come from that. And then oftentimes uh, it's quite amazing how there will be some release in the energy, that obstructed energy. And all of a sudden the, the mental issues, the, the things that we're trying to project it onto, sort of like, well, what happened to that? You know, why was I making that such a problem? <laughs> uh, yeah. I think this woman had a question first, and then we'll go back to somebody else. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm having confusion about some things that I don't understand how they fit together. So after this shock that our body politic has had this past week, um, I experience and, and others I know are, have, are experiencing a sense of more connectedness to a lot of other people, a sense of we are, you know, the, 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 like where your body expands and you feel more connected and, and in different ways and, and, and body, mind, Caring, those mm -hmm. things are, are extended beyond self uh, in a surprising way. And some of that is connected to fear, the fear of real tigers hmm. that we, with our human understandings, can see. Mm -hmm. And so the, it's a confusion about 
how you know how do you take the benefit of the connectedness and 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 wanting that connectedness to be somehow helping to stand by each other when the tiger is real mm. and yet not get caught up in a cycle of obsessive fear mm. or obsessing on anything you mm-hmm. know obsess, obsessing about danger or the perceptions of my question, my confusion. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one. It's obviously in the air these days for a lot of people. And, um, I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways you, you stated the, the goal uh, quite, quite nicely, you know, to be able to um, allow any sense of compassion and, uh, and camaraderie that comes from that to, to blossom, develop, grow, nurture that kind of a sense. Um, the danger is uh, creating an us and them kind of mentality, um, you know. And sometimes it's quite easy to feel that sense of connectedness and compassion with people who hold the same views that you do and are experiencing the same things that you do, because there's a you know kind of like a systemic shock <laughs> that uh, feels quite quite um, common uh, for many people. Um, um, you know, and, you know, you don't... Uh, it's, it's, it's good not to deny that there are um, things that we would... Cons- you know, that through our own value system we would consider unskillful that might bring harm into the world. Um, and we don't want to condone those in any way whatsoever. Um, but if we, uh, if we categorize other people, pigeonhole them, no matter what their behaviors are, uh, and say that uh, that is a fixed reality, then we close the door um, to a very much longer-term, broad sense of compassion. Um, and we don't want to, uh, you know, bypass um, and uh, pretend that everything is okay, you know, or that everything will be okay, um, if that's not what we're feeling. But as you say, we don't want to uh, move into a state of obsessive fear uh, and anxiety, because that just doesn't work. Um, you know, I think that what I encourage people to do um, is to try and keep as long-term a perspective around this whole thing as possible. Um, my view, and it's a view that, you know, I'll just kind of put out there that the Buddha uh, does uh, talk about, um, is that, um, you know, this world of the, this samsara, this wandering on, this existence, this realm. Um, these realms have been going on since inconceivable, an inconceivable beginning. Um, you know, in its most grandiose ways, you know, what the Buddha would call you know, uh, many, many, many uncountable eons of expansion, world expansion and contraction. You know, we're talking about inconceivable amounts of time that beings have been 
born and passing away on their, based on their kama. Um, the, uh, in the human realm, over vast expanses of time, there have been horrible things happening. Any kind of, you know, potentially uh, unskillful, difficult, uh, uh, huge amounts of suffering created in, in the world. And likewise, incredible times of peace, harmony, bliss, uh, and all the good virtues that can be brought up in the world, uh, appearing, having their time in the, in the world, and passing away. Um, and that is kind of the nature of samsara. So trying to keep this perspective without dismissing the effect that we're feeling or a sense of, of wanting to respond in a skillful way, but realizing that, um, yeah, there are, there are beings in the world who do things based on greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, and it has its manifestations. People buy into it, people believe it, people support it, uh, and that we have done that too. You know, as human beings, we all have that innate capacity to be completely and utterly deluded, selfish, uh, and insensitive. Um, and we have the capacity to uh, transcend that. Uh, all human beings have that capacity. What's manifesting from one particular human being at one particular point in time hard to explain all the whys, wherefores, and things like that. But just to realize that uh, no one is beyond hope, and we don't know when a person's individual karma may shift. So the only thing we can do is have of, of compassion. When there's an opportunity for us as an individual to respond in a skillful way and to have some effect from wisdom, not fear, then we do that. We take that opportunity. Um, but uh, doing that from any kind of place of uh, personal anger, fear, uh, the, the, the results of that action uh, in the long run won't, won't bring about the desired results. Thank you very much. Yeah. Did you have a question, Steve? She asked me a question. Okay. <laughs> Audrey. Back here at the yeah. Hi John, thank you. It's a similar question but it's kind of combined with what we've been talking about earlier. My instinct is to run, or I just want to get away. I want to get away from myself having fear, hatred, delusion, and greed. I want to get away from what I see as this somehow other, you know, like... I've had the feeling like something is being done to me mm. by the election and 
my fears of what might happen and I know I don't know what will happen, but from my fear point of view, it doesn't look good and I want to escape. Somehow I'll get out and I know that that's unskillful um, and I don't know how to make a positive effect in any grand way or whereas I feel like it's a grand problem not a little Audrey problem Mm -hmm. (laughs) yet I feel connected to the world of samsara even though I want to escape it I feel this all of my life wanting to get out and wishing I hadn't been born but here I am, or, you know, just, um, I feel caught in the middle mm-hmm. somehow between being alive because I am and wanting to get out. I don't know where out would be. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Somewhere yeah, where greed, hatred, and delusion isn't everywhere. <laughs> Um, I don't know if that's a question or if you have something to say to it. Yeah, no, no, it's a very, uh, I think, uh, an experience that many people are having uh, these days. Um, escape from samsara isn't annihilation. Uh, escape from samsara is learning how to be with conditions as they are, um, with an open mind and open heart. Um, uh, in the world, because that's where we are. <laughs> um, and um, uh, we can't uh, we can't escape it in the sense of uh, not having to experience it. Um, that's like I was saying, that's the annihilationist tendency. Just make it all go away. Get me out of here, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, I don't want to experience this, and that's um, that is like kind of an aversive state of mind, uh, and that brings with it a compounding of the whole problem. Um, there's a, a story from the the suttas, and it's it's more related to the emotion of anger rather than fear. Um, but but um, I think it uh, it can be applied to states of fear and anxiety as well as anger, uh, and that's uh, you can take it as literal or metaphorical uh, from the from the stories. But uh, the story goes that there was a um, uh, time when uh, up in the Brahma realms um, that the great Brahma had left his post to go off somewhere else to do some, attend to some business. And he left his uh, um, throne unoccupied, um, you know, where he would usually sit and, and uh, reside and preside over his uh, realm. Uh, so he was gone. And uh, somehow some uh, demon uh, found his way up into the, uh, to this Brahma realm from one of the lower realms. <clears throat> and... Um, 
appeared in what was usually a very peaceful, uh, beautiful, uh, sublime, serene uh, environment or, or um, birth, in a sense, that whole realm of the Brahma realm, the Brahma gods. <clears throat> and he found his way to the great Brahma's uh, empty throne and plunked himself right up on top of it. This little demon, you know, is kind of sitting there. And um, <clears throat> people would, or people, uh, other lesser Brahma gods, the Brahma's retinue, would come and uh, see this demon uh, sitting there who, who clearly didn't belong. <laughs> and, and fear would come up into them, you know, and righteousness. He shouldn't be there. This is not right. You know, it's, it, you know, uh, it's not good. You know, um, you know uh, he shouldn't be here. Get out of here, that kind of a thing. You know, the anger, the fear would start to arise. And as this continued to happen, the demon grew stronger, you know, and, and really expanded in power because it was an anger-eating demon. <laughs> And the more he grew and, and became more fierce and threatening, the more people would see him and react with that fear and that anger, and the more power that he absorbed from that energy until, you know, he was this big, you know, threatening uh, presence uh, in the Brahma realm. So finally, at some point, the great Brahma returned from his business. <laughs> and saw the, the demon uh, sitting there. And because um, he recognized what was going on, and uh, said, oh, you know, in his, but you, you don't get to be a Brahma god for nothing. And so he had some, <laughs> so he had, he had some uh, compassion and kindness uh, under his belt. <laughs> and he, he wasn't, he didn't buy into the whole paradigm. And he said, oh, Mr. Demon, well, interesting, welcome to my realm. How are you doing? What's it all about? You know, and started kind of sending beaming some of this kindness and compassion. And all of a sudden the demon starts to, to shrink a little bit, you know, gets a little bit smaller. He says, well, you know, what's, you know, tell me a little bit about your life. What's going on? You know, what's happening? Uh, why are you uh, such an ang... You know, where's this? what's all this anger about? You know, what have you experienced? What have you felt? Uh, you know, how can we help? Get smaller, 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 smaller. You can figure out the story. And finally, the compassion, the caring, doesn't feed, doesn't nourish that process, and that little demon hops off the throne, it's gone. You know? So... You know, I think that we can kind of take that as a, you know, a little metaphor or a little myth, if you want to. Um, but you know, it just as hokey as it might all seem. You know, you just have to r- remind yourself that you know, uh, fear and hatred and anger never disappear through fear, hatred, and anger. Only through love, compassion, wisdom, will they actually start to reduce and pass away. So you have to just recognize, recognize that pattern inside yourself of uh, that escalating sense of, of uh, fear and how crippling it is. Um, and not to judge or blame uh, oneself for that, but to realize that it's a, a, 
a fairly intensely, and I'm not saying you're alone in this, this is a very, and we all do it, but it's a personalized way of, of, of feeling it. It's like the world that we experience that in is a very small, narrow world. Um, and um, the way that we can handle it is to expand uh, our sensitivity to the world around us, including to include everything and everybody. You know, it's all here due to causes and conditions. Um, uh, and um, it's, not, it's not about me or mine or my experience or my uh, pain, my wish to be away from it. Um, uh, it's about the fact that in this huge, great, vast cosmos, there are incountable beings uh, who are experiencing all levels of, of pain, pleasure, and in between, uh, all incredibly skillful capacities of compassion and the lowest forms of greed, hatred, and delusion that can manifest in, in a vast cosmos. And we're all part of that uh, as long as we remain in samsara. Um, uh, and, um, you know, in, in, instead of a sense of, of personal sadness or personal fear, um, you know, it becomes more, the emotional feelings become more broad-based, like instead of sadness, it's, it's poignancy to the human condition, to the world around us. Um, instead of fear, it becomes concern, you know, in a broader sense. So the fear, the sadness, those things are very individual kinds of feelings and reactions. The, the concern, uh, the attention, the wish to take action, skillful action, a sense of poignancy uh, as to the human condition uh, is, uh, is a broader, more allowing state of mind where you still feel what's going on, but it doesn't close in on you. You know, you're able to just see it with equanimity and with wisdom and to see it as part of a greater pattern over that happens again and again and again, uh, uh, depending on causes and conditions that we, that we bring into it. Uh, so you, you learn to hold it, you know, with a sense of equanimity. Become, you don't become complacent when times are good. You know, you don't become fearful when times are bad is the ideal kind of response. The more, you, the more you believe that everything should always be good and harmonious and beautiful, that it should be that way, the more you are going to buy into the fear and anxiety when things aren't that way. It doesn't mean you don't try and bring those good things into existence, but when they're there, you use them to understand the cyclical nature of all of this. Uh, and you use the good times and the peace of mind to actually start to see things more balanced and more with equanimity. And some of what we'll talk about later on, I think, is, is learning how to see how we fabricate our own experience for better or for worse through this perceptual process. Um, and we use our increasing wisdom to stop creating the unskillful perceptions of the world around us and inside ourselves 
to abandon those, we learn how to fabricate ones that are more skillful, but not just because we want to experience the good times, because we want what we're really looking to see in the long run is to see how we fabricate both good things, how we fabricate bad things, good, you know, the whole realm, and then how we can just stop fabricating altogether. And in that withdrawal from creating uh, based on good or evil, um, we learn how to just stop that whole process and, and step back from, from that. Uh, and then a peace that's much more sustainable <laughs> and permanent in a sense of uh, moving from beyond good and bad, from moving beyond the opposites of good and evil and the cycles of that um, is actually a whole different transcendent realm of, of, uh, of experience that we can, can move into. But it's keeping that broad perspective. Mine isn't really a question, it's just an appreciation of having done that exercise, which I've done before, but I really slowed it down. And so I was surprised at how, you know, I could watch, I could, I would feel an emotion and then I go, okay, what was the thought? And then I'd track it back and then I'd watch another thought arise and feel the flavor of it mm-hmm. and realize I had a choice and realize some of them are habitual mm-hmm. and probably doesn't serve. I mean, they're not necessarily true or I don't need to feed them. Right. Um, so anyway, for me, it, w- it was very rich because it was so moment to moment to moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's just, great. And that's the power of the meditative, or the, you know, the, the calming state of the mind is because we really do need to have a very clear, peaceful uh, state of mind to, to see the subtleties of that process happen. Yeah. Yeah. You, can't, you can't think it into, you can't just think about it. You, mm-hmm. know, you have to actually experience it you know, and see it clearly as it's happening. So, Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, great, good for you. Right on. Why don't we take some time, speaking of meditation, <laughs> to do that. Um, maybe uh, if people would like to just stand and stretch for a few minutes, that's fine. Um, and then we'll start a period of meditation. And um, what time is it? 2.25. Um, yeah, and maybe we'll just have, give people a little bit of an opportunity to have some extended uh, practice time. Uh, I'll ring the bell um, after maybe uh, 20 or 25 minutes. And if you want to continue sitting, please do so. If you want to get up and walk, please do so. But that what we'll do um, is maybe come uh, come back here at um, uh, 3, 3.30.
So the Buddha talks about um, if we want to, we can really turn our whole perceptual process upside down. <laughs> um, through the uh, power of uh, mental qualities like intention and attention, we can uh, create pretty much any state of mind uh, that we choose to with, with practice. Or we can not do that whole process consciously and let our uh, afflicted states of mind control the whole thing. Um, it's our choice, in a sense. Uh, the default mechanism is just to let the underlying tendencies, the uh, what sometimes is referred to, kind of a harsh word, but the defilements of the mind, the unskillful underlying tendencies that tend to control our habitual reactions, attraction, aversion, delusion, usually are in charge, creating all sorts of situations that uh, draw our attention into creating unskillful intentions, which result in all sorts of um, painful perceptions. We can turn that process upside down if we so choose to. It's a long uh, process of retraining the mind, um, and it involves um, many things, you know, that are all part of the Eightfold Path, which hopefully many of you, if not most of you, are familiar with. So it runs a whole gamut of retraining, uh, retraining ourselves uh, along lines of virtuous conduct, uh, acts of generosity, um, as well as the mind training that we've been talking about mostly today. We can start uh, learning to um, reprogram our perceptual process uh, through questioning and challenging uh, our assumptions, as well as developing more skillful underlying tendencies, underlying states of mind. Work with those two aspects of training the mind in combination together. And it can run the whole range of um, personal perceptions, uh, how we view ourselves, how we view our bodies, how we view our minds, uh, the uh, world outside of us, the people around us, how we view people around us uh, in negative ways, in positive ways. Um, And all along the while, as we're doing this, if we do it consciously, we are seeing how it is that um, negative uh, habits of mind are created and how positive creative uh, states of mind are created.
we learn what we have control over, what we don't have control over. It's kind of um, fun to experiment sometimes uh, with turning our perceptions upside down. Um, and um, yeah, we just get to learn how these, these um, habits are formed. So just starting with something very simple like um, our body image. That's a a big thing in the world these days. Um, uh, Oftentimes there's a lot of emphasis put on uh, how to develop um, positive body images uh, and uh, not get um, wrapped up in in negative body images. we know that if we have an unhealthy negative body image, it creates a lot of um, self-criticism, comparison to other people. Um, and uh, if we have a, an unhealthy positive body image, like we really admire our looks, spend a lot of time trying to beautify ourselves uh, and establish uh, some sort of uh, sense of um, attraction, beauty, then it can lead to, to conceit, it can lead to anxiety and despair when it changes as it will as we get older uh, and it takes a lot of effort uh, to maintain uh, and in, in a way it enslaves us uh, uh, enslaves us to others opinions um, so we can step out of that whole realm of, of um, body image if we want to uh, we can turn uh, our view of ourself and what our bodies are um, upon end if we if we so choose to by changing our perceptions um, so if we have an unhealthy negative body image um, we can look around us um, uh, actually uh, do the same for an unhealthy positive body unhealthy positive body image when it leads to conceit and start a, in, instead of viewing our our bodies um, as uh, objects for attraction or um, uh, you know, comparison, um, we start to see it uh, in a different way. We, we view it in its elemental fashion or as a conglomeration of parts. Um, and, whether we, and, and we do that in a way that's not meant to be degrading uh, or denying um, the positive aspects of, of having a human body, but as a way of uh, deconditioning uh, deconstructing our uh, attachment to it um, so that rather than comparing ourselves to an ideal um, or uh, comparing ourselves to other people uh, or inflating the attractiveness or unattractiveness of others, um, we just start to look at it with uh, a different perspective we attend what we choose to attend to um, will be um, uh, something that that can change how we how we perceive the human body. So we look at the individual body parts. This is one of the instructions that the Buddha gives 
um, looking at uh, dividing up the body into its components of um, you know, different body parts even. Uh, there's the 30, recitation of 32, party, but 32 body parts. Um, you know, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, bones, flesh, inner organs, blood, sweat, fat, tears, all of the components that make up a human body as a way to reduce our attachment, change our perception of, of how we view our body, how we view the bodies of others. So whether we're conventionally attractive and beautiful or conventional, uh, conventionally unattractive or unbeautiful, whether somebody else is conventionally attractive or conventionally unattractive, we just see it all the same. Uh, and we can develop a healthy, positive image in that way, one that's not uh, fixed on beauty or non-beauty, uh, but one that's fixed on utility, uh, the preciousness of having a human body um, to uh, use for spiritual development, to use for spiritual practice, uh, and letting go of the comparisons to others or the comparisons to an ideal so it's taking some sort of perceptual process uh, and turning it on end uh, just by looking at it from a different angle. It leads to a sense of, of clarity and equanimity uh, rather than attachment or aversion. Do that with the mind, mental habits. Um, turn um, uh, turn these kinds of things into um, turn the negative ways, the unhealthy ways that we have of viewing ourselves uh, into. We can upend those. You know, so we might be in a unhealthy, negative. Uh, habitual state of mind, hyper-self-critical, self-judgmental, um, uh, judgmental of ourselves, of our, of our um, states of mind. Uh, we can have sort of an unhealthy, positive, conceited, grandiose sense of who we are. Um, uh, but we can then, again, do the same thing that we can do with our body by changing our perceptions and looking at all of these uh, tendencies, these unhealthy tendencies of how we hold our uh, inner uh, landscape um, and just realize that um, we've all got uh, our habits, our uh, unhealthy, unskillful states of mind, the ways that we view ourselves, um, and not to take it all so individually, personally. We get so wrapped up in um, our inner landscape, our inner habits as uh, who we are, uh, something that we possess, something that we um, uh, create and have to, to suffer with uh, over and over again uh, as a personal issue. I'm, you know, uh, so different and so um, unique <laughs> in all of my, uh, in all of my uh, habits and states of mind. Uh, and then just to realize the university of, of all of this, um, and to not, and, and to expand our our sense of, uh, of, uh, you know, where we focus our minds and and, and what we think of uh, as 
such a personal um, experience. I saw a bumper sticker in uh, White Salmon that I appreciated, and it was like, we're all dysfunctional, get over it. (laughs) (laughs) So trying to take all of these habits of mind a little bit more lightly, you know, and not so so heavy, not so seriously. It's okay. <laughs> um, and also recognizing and appreciating our skillful qualities, um, that which we have developed. Uh, uh, we often, most of the time, forget uh, to really look at um, what it is that uh, we've created uh, in our perceptual world that's, that's useful and good and positive. Um, the caring, the kindness uh, that we've um, engendered in our lives, passed on to others, the generosity, the giving, uh, moral qualities, concern for others, non-harming, uh, the precepts that we pick up and, and really work with despite our uh, lower impulses sometimes. So we need to remember those, bring those up, remember them uh, to uh, develop a a different perceptual state of mind. All of this kind of falls under the um, category of of right effort uh, in the Buddhist teachings. Those of you who are familiar with the Eightfold Path know about right effort as the um, uh, effort to uh, increase and maintain skillful qualities, wholesome qualities, and the effort to abandon uh, and prevent the arising of unskillful and unwholesome qualities. Uh, And it does take effort. It takes attention. It takes conscious uh, recognition um, and readjustment, uh, abandoning those unskillful ones uh, and creating the skillful ones. And the best way to do that is just to really bring into awareness the effects that it has in our mind when we, when we engage in the unskillful uh, perceptions, uh, and then the effects when we gauge, engage in the skillful ones. So just for a minute, close your eyes, close your eyes. We've been talking about fear and anger as, as some of the afflictive emotions. Um, so uh, just as a conscious experiment, um, bring up uh, somebody again, um, whether it's someone in your personal life or uh, someone in the world around us uh, that brings up a sense of, uh, of fear, anger, some strong emotion. Visualize that situation in that person. We're in a safe environment. Uh, allow yourself to do that. What does that feel like? Drop the image for now. 
And imagine someone who you have a lot of reverence for, a lot of respect for, maybe a spiritual leader, maybe someone in your life who's inspiring. So you would, whose qualities you admire, bring that, bring that image into focus. What does that feel like? And for many of you, maybe you can notice how easy it is to change the mood of your mind by what it is that you focus and pay attention to. We have a choice there. So holding on to, for a minute, holding on to that pleasant feeling, bringing up that image of an inspiring figure, inspiring person. Move into that feeling a bit. Keeping in mind that all beings have the capacity to change. Holding very clearly that sense of uh, ease, appreciation, and kindness, and, and love that you have for that, for that inspiring being. Allow that other difficult, uninspiring being to enter that space too. Hold both the positive and negative aspects of all beings in that space of kindness and appreciation. If the mind starts to clench or tighten around the uh, difficult uh, image that, uh, that would normally cause anger or fear, just expand and allow that image of the, the inspiring being to take over the uh, interior landscape again. Really move into and relax into that image, into that feeling. Let that be the forefront of your perceptual process. But don't push out that other one. Let that other one be there too.
allow that space of kindness, big-heartedness, compassion, wisdom, allow that to permeate everything in its space, the skillful, the unskillful qualities of others, all the skillful qualities that we have, all the shortcomings that we have. It's all right there in that one large space. We don't exclude anything from our kindness, our compassion. And just reflect how we have this capacity to change our perceptual world. Maybe we just had some success in doing that right here and now through proper focusing, through proper attention. We fabricated at least a temporary perceptual reality that was inclusive, peaceful. not limited. So allow the processes of uh, creation and fabrication of this state relax also. See if you can settle into a state of mind that is not attached to that goodness that we've just created. That takes a step back even from that creating of beautiful, wholesome states of mind. There's a certain effort needed to maintain that. But just step back from that for a minute into a pure knowing awareness. It isn't clinging to the bad. It's not clinging to the good. A state of non-clinging.
maybe there's a pleasant, sublime state that starts to appear in the, in the heart, in the mind, from that letting go. Notice that. And notice the mind move towards it, even slightly. And release it. Let that one go too. Allow the mind to be very quiet and still. Notice any slight tensions, any movement towards holding on to anything. Even the pleasant blissfulness, the quiet, let it go. The mind moves, notice it, let it go. An object will appear in the mind, maybe a sound, an image, a thought. It's all in flux. Step back from it. Let it go.
Ajahn Chah's famous statement, famous saying, practice boils down to two things, know and let go. Sharings, questions? Let's get the microphone going here. And just your last statement uh, from Ajahn Chah. Uh, know what I want and then let it go. You said no. K N O W, no. Yeah. So I'm adding to know what I want. Mm. Or stop. <laughs> I think we're, when he's talking about that, moving beyond want. Um. Moving beyond want. Just knowing what's happening in the mind, if wanting is there, knowing that that is part of your experience. And, and then letting go, letting go of wanting. Mm. If you want something, that's stressful. Mm. Yeah. But isn't there some planning there involved? Some, I don't know, like planning, uh, I mean, knowing and then letting go, but then there has to be some action, isn't it? I, th I think, yeah, um, maybe thinking about it too much here, you know, trying to rationalize this too much. It's, we, do have to, we do have to develop skills, takes intention, like developing those positive states of mind, but when it comes down to really experiencing a deep transcendent level of peace, it's all a process of relinquishment. Mm. We, have to, we have to use the creative process to create skillful states of mind and have to start there. Because if we're bogged and mired down in unskillful states of mind, 
then we don't have the clarity to, to let go. Positive created states of mind are a much more conducive mental fabrication uh, for uh, being able to let go. It's easier to let go from a state of kindness, compassion, than it is from a state of wanting, grasping. So, are you saying, well, this is the way you can, I'll just say what I think and then you can tell me what you think, please. Um, There's effort that one that I put into the practice, you know, um, all of these skills, skillful means and all that. Mm -hmm. And then there's a certain point at which I don't, that it just, you let go. You just, you can't do it. One cannot do it. It is, that's the transcendent part, I believe. Well, you, you realize that as useful and as much as we need to create the wholesome states of mind, um, that there's a subtle stress in actually doing that as well. Um, because it's a, a f- it's a process of either Ajahn Jeff's words of fabrication of creation. It takes a, an effort to bring something into being, even if it's a skillful mind state. Um, and it's a subtle layer of stress, but it is still there, even in the highest states of meditative concentration. That some people, not myself, <laughs> are able to, to really fabricate and create even the very, very deepest, highest uh, layers of consciousness uh, and beyond. There's still an element of stress involved in bringing that into being and maintaining that. So the ultimate uh, goal in the, in the Buddhist practice, um, if you take it as far as it will go, to complete liberation is a process of letting go of all of those forms of fabrication. Um, it's a process of stepping back, 
relinquishing uh, even the creation of uh, the highest and most beautiful states of mind that can exist within the realm of conditions because they're still within the realm of conditions. And so it's an actual relinquishment, letting go, that allows us to get a glimpse of what is apart from the whole realm of conditions, even the most skillful, the unfabricated, the unmade, the unborn, the undying. But I mean, even if one, on the less higher states, you know, just in like my everyday practice, there's just a certain place at which I can't do anything. I mean, I, it just has to be, I do everything, I, you know, I sit on the cushion <laughs> and um, I have a meditation object and whatever I do, I, you know, I make effort and then I just have to trust the pe- path. I just let go. I mean, I just have to, it has to, it has a momentum of its own. Is, I think that's what I'm asking. Yeah, um, yeah. In, you have to look at the quality of your effort. You know, sometimes um, if there's a certain laziness that's coming in, you have to increase the mm-hmm. the attention, the effort, uh, the energy that you put into something to focus. You know, like if you're just drifting and daydreaming on the cushion, you know, that's not going to get you very far. I mean, you know, we do that without any effort at all. <laughs> very easy. Um, uh, but if you're overstraining and you're bringing in tension uh, into the meditation, into the cushion, you know, and it's kind of this intense, tense kind of uh, effort that you're putting into trying to, um, you know, maintain a skillful state or maintain a quality, then you might have to back off just a little bit. It's like uh, the Buddha would often talk about practice is, is like tuning a, a fine-tuning an instrument, you know, you can't, if you tune the strings of a lute or a guitar or whatever too tight, it's strained and, and, and not harmonious. If they're too loose, they don't make a sound. You have to get it just right. So it takes effort, but it takes relaxation. Both. Back to, to go back to what you were saying just a little moment ago, because uh, I've never quite I've st- struggled with a little bit. How do you move from a mind that is conditioned and shaped by conditions, even however subtle they might be, to a mind that is no longer fabricating at all, or is no longer really conditioned anymore? Uh, that seems to me an incredible gulf to trying to cross over. Yeah. Yeah. Can you help me out with that? (laughs) It's starting to uh, view uh, experience through the lens of Dhamma. Um, And there's 
I mean, some of the ways that we've talked about today are the um, uh, noticing that you know stressfulness in, in creating anything, even positive uh, states of mind. There's an underlying effort that's required, underlying you know movement of mind, and noticing that uh, uh, as uh, even uh, unsatisfactory. Um, other ways to view experience that helps to lead to that real wish to relinquish and to let go that allows that unconditioned state of mind to, to become forefront are really basically the classic contemplation of the three, the, the other two characteristics of the three characteristics. We're talking about dukkha, stress, unsatisfactoriness. But also um, looking at any fabricated experience in the body or the mind um, as transient, um, impermanent, anicca. Um, and that uh, even the most skillful, wholesome, beautiful, uplifting states of mind um, are subject to change when the causes and conditions that have put them into being uh, no longer exist, um, then they will change. Uh, we can't sustain them uh, indefinitely. And, you know, a lot of extremely well-practiced beings like uh, the Mahabrahma that we were talking about before, <laughs> head of the Brahma realm, probably got pretty good at sustaining it for pretty long periods of time. But even that's a, a you know an impermanent, unstable state of mind, no matter how long it is. So contemplating that the changeability uh, of, of all phenomena, of all states of mind, and, that, um, and, and really experiencing that on a deep level uh, is what's required. So that deep in our contemplation, um, any uh, uh, fabricated, uh, compounded state of mind, state of body, state of any experience, is contemplated and watched and seen as it arises, as it persists, as it passes away. And with that experience penetrated quite deeply into seeing that transiency over and over and over and over again of all these experiences, um, uh, comes a sense of, of that, you know, the stress that's involved in maintaining you know, maintaining, bringing up, refreshing uh, all of these states of mind, even these positive, skillful ones. Um, And um, uh, realizing that, in a sense, we only have a limited amount of control. We do have the ability to apply our uh, attention in skillful ways, like all we've been talking about today. And, And we you know, should be encouraged to do that uh, as a way of increasing skillful states, decreasing unskillful states, how to manipulate our conditions as best we can. Um, But in a sense, there's, you know, um, uh, if we really see uh, those processes happening quite deeply, we see how it's all part of a, a conditioned um, 
state of mind. Even these very subtle qualities of intention, which feel like there's a me who's doing that, we see that those are actually dependent on other causes and conditions to other states of mind that have been brought into being. And that behind it all, there is no abiding entity who's doing it. It's a repetitive cycle of uh, conditioning through proper attention. Uh, And if we see that all very clearly, see it all arising, persisting, passing away, um, due to causes and conditions, um, uh, there just becomes this sense of like... um, enormity of the effort that it takes to keep functioning in a skillful way in the world and a sense of uh, disenchantment. It's like, is it really worth all the effort <laughs> that it takes? You know. Um, and there's a sense of um, just not being fooled by it anymore. You're not believing that it's going to bring you a sense of everlasting, permanent, unchanging happiness, which is kind of what it is that we're all looking for. That no matter how sublime and beautiful it is, it's going to take uh, effort to maintain. Uh, And it's always in this state of flux. Uh, And if we're looking for something that's really permanent, satisfying, complete, um, that... um, we lose this interest in trying to maintain it in the ways that we've we've been doing it, uh, and that leads to this kind of disenchantment. We see that we're not enchanted by it anymore. We don't. We aren't fooled. We aren't fooled. We see that it's not working, and that leads to a sense of dispassion, of not wanting to be uh, entangled uh, in this whole realm with that very cool, very peaceful uh, sense of disenchantment and dispassion, then naturally the wish to really relinquish, really let go, is a natural response. So it's not becoming anything, it's not creating anything, it's not manufacturing a state of mind. It's just stepping back from that whole process of creation uh, just dropping it, yeah, letting it go. And that's where true relinquishment comes in. And then it gives the chance for this uh, quality of uh, unconditioned knowing to, to, to uh, move into awareness. It's hard to describe because it's not anything that can be described in the realm of, of, of conditions. All words, all concepts are part of the conditioned realm. So the only way to really grok it <laughs> and to experience it is to allow the mind to step back and remove itself from the, um, the realm of, of creation uh, and becoming The words can only point you in a certain direction. It has to be an internal experience.
I don't usually get quite this <laughs> into this realms too much in retreats, just because it's sometimes it's daunting for people to to try and get their minds around. But I I feel like it's kind of my duty as a monk. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like these are the teachings of the Buddha that don't get talked a lot about in the West. You know, we don't go into transcendence very much. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, the ultimate goal in the Buddhist teachings, and it's there for us to uh, realize, any one of us. <laughs> Do you experience you're not that? You're not allowed to ask that question. <laughs> Right. You know, in a sense, it doesn't matter. Um, I hesitate, you know, I don't answer that because actually um, uh, there's some very strict monastic rules um, about uh, declaring uh, any kind of attainments. Um, uh, so, um, uh, we just do the best we can from as clear a state of mind as we can as as monks uh, and pra- other practitioners to um, describe what we understand as the Buddhist teachings um, and uh, let our own experience, personal experience, whether it's very mundane or, you know, maybe a little bit transcendent, you know, uh, we let that try and inform our teachings but try and keep as best we can to, uh, here's how we understand what the Buddha taught. Yeah. I've just, I mean, not to be too oblique, I have a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious if you could um, keep going with the... Um, the internal versus external um, and experience um, versus thinking, these dichotomies? I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch the question. Oh, if, if you could um, expand on that a little more? Internal versus external? Yeah, um, like academia versus like meditation experience oh 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 you mean sort of like the uh, uh kind of if you will the conceptual or intellectual aspect of of the teaching and contemplation versus just mm-hmm. the internal internalization realization of it yeah yeah um it's important to have a a certain conceptual framework of the practice um, if you don't have any map at all, you're not going to get where you want to go, you know. Um, so the teachings are there to help provide that that map, um, and it begins with understanding it on a you know conceptual level because that's how ideas and uh, are, are passed on is through through words, you know, concepts. Um, and so it brings us into the, into the ballpark of, 
of the experience uh, by having it sort of on a, a conceptual level. And so, the, you know, the Buddha taught on a verbal level for you know, 45 years after his enlightenment. And there's a whole cache of teachings, you know, the, the suttas, the, the, the tripitaka, the whole collection of teachings. Um, um, so there's a certain uh, amount that one needs to do to, to uh, familiarize oneself with the path and the goal, the problem, the path, and the goal. <laughs> um, but it's also that for some people can be quite intoxicating um, because uh, there's a certain amount of pleasure that comes from having a conceptual understanding. Uh, and um, some people have a, you know, a very vast capacity for that kind of uh, knowledge and that kind of learning. Um, and there's plenty of teachings of the Buddha and plenty of nuances uh, within that realm that a person can get really involved with, and it can be quite gratifying. Uh, but if it's not internalized, if it's not brought into experience, if it's not developed uh, as a contemplative practice, then it just remains a conceptual model. Uh, and there's plenty of people out there who have a lot of book learning and not much wisdom. <laughs> so um, it's good to have enough to put you into a contemplative direction, but uh, the bulk of the work is an internal exploration uh, and, uh, and actually putting into practice of particularly the, the Eightfold Path, um, really taking it on and seeing the effects of living a good, virtuous, moral life, not harming by body, speech, or mind, by adopting um, uh, uh, you know, skillful ways of, of being in the world, to settle the mind, to calm the mind, um, and to develop the, the contemplative practice, the meditation, um, as deeply as one can, because that's where real wisdom, real insight arises, is from the contemplative uh, bringing it in. question down here. I'm curious. Um, I think it makes sense that a lot of the Western, the teachers in the West don't talk about the transcendence, kind of because it's not that practical for everybody's <laughs> daily life. So I'm just curious. I mean, is it did the Buddha teach that it was possible to attain those states without being full-time on it like a monk can be? <laughs> <laughs> there are um, examples in the suttas of uh, very well-practiced lay practitioners um, having, I mean, classically there's, you know, like four, the four states of liberation, um, the four stages of, of liberation, and um, uh, there's, you know, uh, 
the scriptures include uh, uh, non-monastic practitioners who, for various reasons, don't take up the monastic life, uh, and uh, but still, essentially, you know, live in a very uh, restrained uh, uh, lifestyle with a devotion to the practice. Um, so it's not dependent on, on ordination. <laughs> right, but, but is dependent on kind of full attention on the practice, it yeah, sounds like. Full, it full, full, full life involvement. In, I mean, it's like, could you have a day job? <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what your day job is, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. There was uh, there's a there is one just that comes immediately to mind. Uh, uh, one of the devoted lay uh, disciples uh, was a potter, uh, and he was uh, had uh, two aging parents that he was obligated. He felt obligated to look after and take care of. Um, so he maintained his livelihood as a potter. Uh, and his devotion to caring for his aging patients and uh, parents, but um, his conviction and his faith and his uh, parami his his developed kamma was so strong, and his devotion to the path was so strong, uh, and his contemplative abilities were so strong, and he didn't want to focus his life on any other way. Yet he had certain duties, you know. Uh, monks, even well, well, extremely well practiced and well realized monks, have duties. You know, there are duties in the world just to live. So this potter also had his duties. Mm-hmm. He had a livelihood. He lived it as skillfully as possible, and he, uh, uh, at least as uh, the suttas go, I think he. Uh, was at least he attained the state of the third stage of non-returning, which meant that when he passed away from this life, he would not be born into the world again, but he would be reborn in a very high realm from which he would attain into which he would attain uh, complete liberation. So he maintained a livelihood, but it probably was a little bit different than what most of our livelihoods are like. Question over here. Thank you. Um, I um, I'm curious, uh, just from a very practical point of view, um, what your thoughts are on um, my situation. Is I find um, my perception of certain architecture to really trigger things, namely deep in the heart of a city as opposed to being out in, in a forest. Um, I, find, I find the two experiences very different, but I have to work in the heart of the city. So I'm wondering if you have any just practical thoughts about, about how to um, shed the burden <laughs> uh, that I feel working in the heart of a city and mass transit and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not easy because the distractions are strong. Uh, the more we're distracted into the realm of, of senses, the senses, the harder it is to develop a certain uh, stillness, 
uh, in our lives. You know, some of it depends on uh, the complexity of what you have to engage with. Um, uh, and there is, uh, you know, um, people with a strong practice uh, and who have a strong commitment and a strong faith uh, in the teachings. Um, you can move through uh, busy environments if you have a strength of mind not to get let the attention get lost in proliferation and in stimulation. It's not easy. You know? And the Buddha certainly encouraged uh, practitioners uh, to use a peaceful environment to help reduce that level of distraction. Um, but, and that's why, you know, retreat centers like this exist oftentimes, you know, or monasteries like ours exist for, not just for monks uh, to, uh, to come out to, but for anybody, lay practitioners who live in the city, to come and get, take little, you know, breaks uh, to help settle the mind and, and be able to develop some clarity. And then to take that back uh, into the, into the city, into the into the realm of distraction, and hopefully, what you do is you learn um, how to restrain the senses. You know, and, and it takes a lot more effort. Sense restraint takes a lot more effort uh, in an extremely stimulating environment. Um, but sense restraint is a very important part of of the practice, uh, uh, and it doesn't. But it doesn't require removal from the actual stimulation, it requires a strength of attention to not get lost in the details, to not get lost in that, those things that trigger attraction, you know, that trigger sensual, sensual pleasure or sensual aversion to, that are so prevalent uh, in, a, say, a, an inner-city environment. Um, so the skill is learning how to maintain the focus uh, on objects that are settling and stilling to the mind in situations whenever possible. So training the mind not to get moving into, you know, uh, looking at things that are sensually pleasurable and that excite the senses, but restraining that from happening, noticing, you know, you said architectural kinds of things. Well, I, I, you know, sometimes uh, we get so caught in objects we forget to notice the space. But that's a great object to uh, tune your attention to in a, in a city is rather than getting lost in the objects, uh, just refocus the mind on the space uh, in and around objects as a way of kind of broadening, softening, stilling uh, your experience in the midst of activity. Okay, sure. One more question. Okay, I'm sorry. No, be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because it keeps back to the same body sensation. So most of the time I really was, my body was not connected to my head. I was all head, mm-hmm. you know, all thoughts. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... um 
So now you said that the experience is in the body, right? Like so, I when I'm meditating, especially now, I I I hear sounds and um, and then I let them go, and then I, you know, you said the six senses, the thinking mind. So I have this thought, and then I'm letting them go. But now you were talking about not let those um, distractions, and that they could be distractions too, you know, just being attuned to what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, and letting them go, that also is distracting, or is it there where the... Uh, Distraction would involve um, uh, more allowing yourself to get engaged uh, with those uh, uh, feelings, thoughts, uh, sensations, experiences that you experience through the sense bases. Um, so, uh, knowing them, uh, is different from engaging with them. You can be aware of all of the input that's coming in through the sense doors, um, and at the same time, letting them go just as they arise. And just by doing that... Just by keep on doing that over and over, that's where the message is? That's where the gold is? Or that's where the... Well, it's a skillful means. It's a skillful process. uh, That's where the skill comes. Pardon? The skill. The skill comes from... Yeah, the skill comes from not allowing yourself to uh, engage with, proliferate on, and letting the... The desire, the attachment, mm. the fear, the 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 underlying tendencies glom on to the experiences that come in through the sense doors. Mm. So it's when those on. it's when those tendencies uh, will glom on to <laughs> that's mm. the word I can, best, best word I can think of attached to uh, the sensory data, the input, the sights, the sounds, the tastes. Mm. Uh, the the ideas when fear picks up one of those when desire picks up one of those when anger irritation picks up a certain input from the sense world holds on to it grows with it proliferates with it that's where suffering comes okay I get it. so so in the, while I'm doing that while meditate during my meditation, that will set, that will reinforce the new skills. So when I am in the real world, I will have that practice, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. That's the that's the hope and the practice and the. <laughs> Why don't we just uh, sit quietly for a few minutes before? Wrapping up.
So I just wanted to express my appreciation for uh, people coming and spending the day here. This is a pretty crazy world. (laughs) And um, we all have to uh, find a place of refuge. Uh, Of course, the most secure refuge is in our own hearts and our own minds uh, as we develop and realize the uh, benefits of this practice. Um, In the meantime, we need to find safe havens to park ourselves (laughs) and uh, finding spiritual community uh, is... As the Buddha says, uh, it's the most uh, important external condition that we can uh, uh, engage with. Um, So um, the opportunity to come together, uh, spend a day when we could be doing all sorts of other things, um, is something to be uh, really appreciated and... um, uh, recognized as, as the, best, the best thing that we can do with our lives. Uh, and I uh, just want to thank everybody who's here for making this possible and for um, allowing me the privilege of coming and sharing and learning from you. And I uh, just want to uh, invite people also to uh, uh, break the barrier, come up to the monastery. <laughs> Join us for practice up there. Uh, come and experience a taste of uh, uh, the monastic lifestyle for a day or an evening or a week or however long you wish. Uh, and um, just hope to see you soon.